0: All right, please turn with me to Habakkuk, chapter 1. When was the last time someone told you to turn to Habakkuk? Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Um, We'll read the first 11 verses of this first chapter. Uh, which are uh, cited in part, quoted in part, by the Apostle Paul in our sermon text today. So this will help us to get the broader context of what Paul has in mind as he issues a stern warning to his listeners on the basis of Habakkuk's prophecy. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, violence, And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, Amen. Let's turn to our sermon text now in Acts 13. Continuing Paul's first missionary journey, which we began last week, we'll read verses 13 to 52. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, And motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about forty years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would, will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the title you'll see in the bulletin for this sermon is A Covenantal Crisis. If you look up the definition of crisis, um, one, there's the shorter Oxford English Dictionary defines it as a, a turning point, a vitally important or decisive stage, a time of trouble, danger, or suspense in politics, commerce, etc., or in personal life. Um, it also lists an older meaning for the word that's not commonly used anymore, which is simply a judgment or a decision. Our word "crisis" actually comes from the Greek word "crisis," just comes straight over from Greek, uh, and that Greek word means judgment or decision. crisis, I suppose, in Greek. Um, here in Acts, <coughs> we are at a stage in the history of God's plan for salvation, what we sometimes call redemptive history, um, that we could describe as a, a real crisis, a turning point. Things are changing. It's a covenantal crisis, we would say, because things are changing for the covenant people, for the Israelites. They're being called now to see in Christ and everything that he's just done quite recently, the real thing, the real thing compared to the Old Testament pictures that foreshadowed him, the real thing compared to the distorted expectations of, their, uh, of Judaism that got the Old Testament wrong. It's a turning point. It's a moment of decision. It's a crisis for Israel. And we've seen this repeatedly uh, through the first 12 chapters of Acts. But it's not just a big-picture crisis kind of for Israel in general in the abstract. The coming of Christ... And the proclamation of the gospel (coughs) lead to a personal crisis for every individual and every particular community where that message makes its way. What is this community, what is this person going to do about Jesus? Today, in this passage, that crisis comes to the city of Pisidian Antioch, we call it. Um, But I hope you'll see that that same crisis that they faced that day, every one of us must face when we are confronted with this same message of the Lord Jesus. The only question is, which direction are we going to go in the face of that crisis, that turning point? I want to give you three points to help divide up the passage this morning. The first heading will be covenantal continuity, verses 13 to 25. Second will be covenantal contrast, verses 26 to 41. And then third, a covenantal crossroads. That's 42 to 52. So covenantal continuity, covenantal contrast, and a covenantal crossroads. Verse 13, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark leave the island of Cyprus, there in the Mediterranean Sea, And they head north now by ship to the mainland of Asia Minor, which is now called Turkey. Um, So Paphos uh, that they leave from was that city on the western side of the island of Cyprus where they met with Sergius Paulus and the magician Elemis. So that's where they're coming from. And after they land on the coast near uh, the city of Perga, uh, they make their way north from there, to a city called Antioch in Pisidia. Now, that can get kind of confusing because their home base is also called Antioch back in Syria. But that's a completely different Antioch. So we have to separate them in our minds. We call this one Pisidian Antioch because it's in the region of Pisidia. It's a totally different place there in Turkey, Um, uh, not modern-day Turkey. And uh, to get there to this new Antioch, They actually had to cross a difficult mountain range. You can see this if you just look on a topographical map. To get from the sea up to that region, you have to cross what are known as the Taurus Mountains. Um, And whether for that reason, because of the difficulty, or for for some other uh, unspecified reason, um, their companion and helper, John Mark, at this point, decides to go home. Uh, And John, and he also goes by Mark elsewhere, so we call him John Mark. left them, it says, and returned to Jerusalem, verse 13. He doesn't even go back to Antioch. He goes back all the way to Jerusalem. Um, Now, Luke doesn't comment on this any further now, although later we're going to see that Paul viewed this as John Mark kind of quitting the mission uh, midway through uh, to the point that he doesn't want to take Mark with him on, uh, on his next missionary journey. But that's for later. We'll get to that when we come to it. In time. Uh, One important thing to know about Pisidian Antioch is that it was located within the Roman province, this is going to sound familiar, I hope, of Galatia. And this Antioch is in the Roman region, province of Galatia, uh, as in the book of Galatians. And so um, the next couple of chapters are actually going to be a very important bit of background for the New Testament letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians because he's meeting these Galatians for the first time here, proclaiming the gospel to them, planting the church in these Galatian cities, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. He's traveling through this southwestern corner of that Roman province. It goes farther north and east as well, um, but these are the, the Galatian cities where Paul has the, seems to have the closest relationship as far as we can tell from Acts. And we could ask, uh, where does Paul go Um, when he first gets to this city. Where in the city does he head when he wants to start preaching Christ there? Well, he goes to the synagogue. And that's exactly what he did in Cyprus, right? This is, again, Paul's pattern. He usually goes to the synagogues first. Um, The gospel, as you remember from Romans one sixteen, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Paul says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's that order uh, that's reflected in his missionary activity. Um, And here, like back on Cyprus, once again, the Lord has providentially arranged a kind of golden opportunity for him uh, to talk about the good news. Paul keeps getting these wide open invitations. Uh, Just tell us what you have to say, Paul. What's on your mind today? And so he keeps getting these wide open chances to speak. And in this case, he can start anywhere he wants. And so it's instructive for us to see, well, with this particular audience, where does Paul choose to start? Where does he pick up to um, communicate the message of the gospel to them, to introduce this particular audience to the good news about Christ. I think it's very interesting then that he goes really back to the beginning for Israel, back to the patriarchs, back to the exodus, the wilderness, the conquest, the judges. These are the essential elements, the big movements in the history of Israel and the history of the covenant. That's God's relationship with Israel. I've called this first point covenantal continuity, because Paul is very keen to show here that his message is not about an alternative religion. He is not here to turn his Jewish audience away from the faith of the Old Testament. Rather, his message he wants them to see as the next step in that history. The gospel, then, is the covenant now coming to its own. It's the same covenant of grace. So Paul, Paul is not here to tell them you need to forget Abraham, you need to forget Moses, you need to forget David, because I'm giving you Jesus instead. No, he's saying remember Abraham. Remember Moses. Remember David. What comes next? What do the scriptures teach you to expect should come next? To be the, the next movement, the next episode in that history of God's salvation. That redemptive history. And this is why he slows down uh, when he gets to David. Because after the failure of Saul, God raised up David to be their king, verse 22, and now it's of this man's offspring that God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. What he's showing is that you can draw a straight line from Abraham Through Moses, through David, straight to Jesus. They are all part of the one plan of God. God's same covenant relationship with his people. What God promised during their times, he has now in fact done once and for all in the coming of Jesus Christ. It's very important when we think about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we see them always as intimately connected, not with some high 100-foot wall between them. One, in fact, grows out of the other in an organic way, like a living thing. There, There are not two plans of salvation, one for Israel and one for Christians. There are not two separate peoples of God Israel then and to the church now. There is one plan of salvation for one people of God under one basic covenant relationship that developed through time more and more as God revealed it more and more clearly and as God accomplished more and more of his saving work in it. One theologian describes it. Some of you will recognize this uh, very much so. Uh, Like an oak tree. It starts out as a little acorn. And sure, an acorn doesn't look much like an oak tree, does it? It doesn't, doesn't look like an oak tree, but it is the beginning of an oak tree. And then it grows into a seedling, and then it grows into a sapling, and so on, until at last it is that full-grown tree. And there are very much differences. Clearly, there are differences at each step along the way, but fundamentally, it's the same oak tree all the time. In fact, it's the same oak tree at every step along the way. It's a very good metaphor for the way that Paul is presenting the gospel in this synagogue. He's not preaching a new religion. He is preaching the true religion, now full-grown, when they've only ever known it at a far younger stage of development. Crucial in verse 23 is the word promise. Promise. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. The relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is a relationship of promise and fulfillment. What God said he would do, he has now actually done in Christ. And to verify this, uh, Paul appeals to someone who has been called um, the last Old Testament prophet. And we read about him, of course, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, But historically, covenantally, his ministry really belongs at the very end of the old, standing on the verge of the new. And that, of course, is John the Baptist. He wasn't the Messiah, but he was announcing to Israel that 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 time of fulfillment was right around the corner. It's coming right now, right on the brink of it. And, And now Paul is saying it has finally come it's come, first of all, in keeping with that principle of covenant continuity, it has come, first of all, to Israel. It's come to Israel. That's where Jesus came. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. Paul is identifying himself here with them as a fellow Israelite. And he's, telling, he's telling them it was to us Israelites that Jesus came. The promise is for us, of all the people in the world, we should be the quickest to accept it. We should be the most excited to receive this message because we've heard it foretold for so long. Paul is uh, known to us now as the apostle to the Gentiles. But during his ministry and in his writings, there's this logical order. Again, to the Jew first and also to the Greek He recognizes that Jesus came to Israel first. And other people groups are gathered in, um, well, partly because Israel fails to respond. That's one of the things that opens the door to the Gentiles, is Israel's rejection of the gospel. But there's another side to this, which is that when those Gentiles are gathered in, when those other peoples are gathered into the church, that happens because they are being made part of that one people of God. In a sense, they're being made part of Israel, true spiritual Israel through being united to Christ, the true Israelite. That's the principle of covenantal continuity that Paul starts with. Of all people, this audience here in the synagogue ought to be, if everybody's being reasonable, the most excited to receive this message. However, Paul goes on to describe the great tragedy that took place when Jesus, in fact, came on the scene to Israel. In John chapter 1, remember the apostle says he came to his own. But what happened? His own did not receive him. Paul is making the same point here. Those who live in Jerusalem, that center of Israelite life, and their rulers, that's the people who ought to know better, who ought to know best. These are the, the, the brightest and most informed, scripturally knowledgeable of all the Israelites. But he says they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. In other words, they had no excuse. Everybody should have seen this coming. Every time you come to the synagogue, you read the writings that promise the coming of Christ. But when he actually came, it's like they were blind. And yet they were inexcusably blind, willfully blind, because they had all the information that they needed. It was right there in front of them to recognize the Messiah when he came, and yet they refused to admit who Jesus was, because it threatened other things that they valued more in their own selfish kingdom. Now that didn't change the fact that those people in Jerusalem were still part of the covenant story. They're just not part, the part of the covenant story that you that you want to be in. It says since they didn't understand the prophets, instead they fulfilled them in a different way. Fulfilled the prophets by condemning him, playing the part of the villain in the covenant history. Paul here is treading much the same ground as Peter did in his Pentecost sermon back in Acts chapter 2, as he makes the death and the resurrection of Jesus the centerpiece of the message, for one thing. He talks about how it's verified by the eyewitness testimony of the people who saw him alive. And so the good news for uh, the... Jewish listeners in front of him then is that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So our ancestors had the hope, the expectation, but we have the real thing. Can you believe it? We are the, gener- the generation where God has made all these promises come true. As a remarkable time in history to be living. I've called the second point covenantal contrast. Uh, when people talk about the relationship between the Old and New Testaments, they'll often talk about continuity and discontinuity, and many differences in the way people think about that history of salvation as to do with how much continuity do you see between the Old and the New, and how much of a break do you see, how, much, how many differences, what kinds of differences, how much discontinuity, what's the same from the Old and the New, and what's different. Well, I would want to say the most fundamental difference is this. It's that promise versus fulfillment dynamic. Back then, God gave the promises, but now he's given us Jesus. Back then, he spoke through David in the Psalms, for example, in Psalm 2, where it says, you are my son today, I've begotten you. And there was, of course, a limited symbolic sense in which David was the royal son. He was God's representative to the people. He was the object of God's special blessing and care. God used him to be a savior for Israel from their um, enemies around, military enemies. But, of course, Jesus was God's son in a far greater and and fuller sense. Um, God promised holy and sure blessings to David, Isaiah 55 says, as Paul references in verse 34. But, of course, Christ received those blessings in a much fuller way than David received those blessings, especially... The one, and now Paul goes to Psalm 16, about how you're not going to let your Holy One see corruption in the grave. Here again, we should be reminded of Peter's Pentecost sermon, where he makes a great deal of that Psalm 16 promise, and, and they really make the same argument here. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Peter and Paul were somehow in competition, that they were somehow teaching different early versions of Christianity. It's, it's the same gospel in Peter and in Paul. They're even citing the same passages. They're using the same argument. They have the same perspective on how God's plan of salvation is unfolding from the old into the new. Their argument is the same. Even in the details, it's that David's body decomposed, but Jesus' body did not. God raised him from the dead. And so what David only foreshadowed, Jesus actually was and is now as the risen Christ in heaven. Now that, so that, that, um, promise and fulfillment dynamic is one historical contrast between the Old Testament and the New. There's another one there, um, though, uh, one that has been described sometimes as the difference between law and gospel. Promise and fulfillment is one, law and gospel is another. And the law and gospel one um, it has, is, is, is the way we can get at the personal implication of of this time of fulfillment. It's the personal implication for anybody who wants to be part of this covenant relationship as it has now developed. Verse 38 has the word, therefore. Paul is drawing a a conclusion from what he said so far. So, okay, if Jesus rose from the dead, then what does that mean for us? Um, They might have wondered. And so Paul is saying, well, here's what it means. What it means for you forgiveness from your sins. It means forgiveness from your sins. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Uh, You can notice the footnote there, if you have the ESV, where it points out that the word freed uh, stands for the Greek word that's also translated justified, declared righteous. Um, One commentator points out how significant is this overlap uh, between uh, this section of the sermon and Paul's letter to the Galatians later, where justification is a major theme. Remember, he's in Galatia now, but um, this contrast between Moses and Christ, um, the gospel of justification that can't come through the works of the law... Those are the great messages of the book of Galatians, of the letter to the Galatians. And here he is planting the seeds of that message in his very first sermon to them in their synagogue. It's pretty neat to see those connections. And it's on the basis of the history of salvation, redemptive history. Because of that change from promise to fulfillment, that's the historical foundation for the change from law to gospel. It means that a change has come about in how God's people are to approach God No longer through the ceremonies and shadows of the law of Moses, the law could point to salvation, but the law never had the power actually to save them. Now, is this to say that there was no gospel given to the people of Israel under Moses? No. There was a great deal of grace, a great deal of good news, a promise of free forgiveness through God's sovereign action, not through anything that they could earn. That was represented in the sacrificial system, in the tabernacle, and the temple, and so on, and all the ways that even the law of Moses pointed forward to Christ. Is that to say that there is no law now for us under the new covenant? Not at all. The law of God still applies to us um, in Christ, as Christ is our lawgiver, and we want to live in obedience to the law because we love Christ, because of all that he's done for us, and because he's our king. And so when we when we talk about the difference between law and gospel, we're not saying that there was no gospel under the law or that there's no law under the gospel. We're talking about a, a difference in the way that God's people are to approach God, no longer through those ceremonies and shadows of the of, of the of the law of Moses, but now through Christ Himself, the one who actually saves, the one who casts the shadow. The brightness of God's glory back into the old as he is pictured there in all of those ceremonies and rituals and objects and, and places and people and so on. If you want forgiveness for your sins, Paul is saying, if you want to be declared righteous even though you know that you have broken God's law, which we all have, what do you need to do? You need to come to Jesus. It's through him that God has provided grace, that free gift of undeserved favor. That's what grace is. And and that's how this whole episode ends with Paul and Barnabas urging the people who have responded to this message to continue in the grace of God, that undeserved favor of God. But first, before they get to that, um, first Paul accompanies this good news proclamation with a very sober warning. There's good news that also comes with warning. Yes, the the coming of Jesus is good news for Israel in general, but it is not good for ev- good news for everyone in Israel. It's not for those who who will who are going to act like the leaders of Jerusalem. Those who are going to refuse this salvation that God has sent. And so Paul concludes here: Beware, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then he quotes from Habakkuk where Habakkuk describes that invasion coming from Babylon, the Chaldeans are going to come in, that covenantal judgment that God had prepared for rebellious Judah back in his day. Now Paul is saying the prophetic word is coming to you again, just like it came then. And if you don't listen now, then covenant judgment is going to fall on you, just like it fell on your ancestors when they didn't listen to the prophets. And the message for the people in this synagogue is don't let that be you. Don't be that guy. In other words, It rejects the word of God and the open invitation to salvation and forgiveness that God's holding out to you in Christ. So you see there's a crisis here which you might call a covenantal crossroads. This crisis that has already faced the Israelites of Jerusalem is now facing the Israelites living in Galatia. Which way are you going to go? How are you going to respond? What are you going to decide? And sadly, the story kind of gets repeated. The, by and large, the leaders of the Jewish community here in Antioch reject everything. It says they were filled with jealousy, which sounds familiar. It's just what happened in Jerusalem. Filled with jealousy, they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. It's the word for blaspheming there in Greek. Um, so rather than learning from the mistakes of the Jerusalem leaders, they just imitate them, and so Paul and Barnabas come back to them with a rejoinder that is, well, it's, it's going to just make them a lot matter. They say, "We we came to you first, uh, but since you've rejected God's message, since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, that's what we're going to do. We're going to turn to the Gentiles." You can imagine the outrage. They do this on the basis of the scriptures. Once again, they're saying, this isn't something we've come up with. It's not our idea. This is something you should be looking forward to on the basis of the Old Testament. They cite Isaiah 42, again, going to the Old Testament to show that this is not unexpected. This is not a bizarre thing for them to be doing. This is what God said his plan of salvation was all along. The mission to the Gentiles also is a natural outgrowth organically, not a contradiction of the faith of ancient Israel. It comes right out of it. It's the natural next thing. And so now that crisis, that crossroads, that decisive choice is set before not just the Israelite community, it's set before every person living in this city. The Israelites, by and large, choose the path of covenant rebellion, as it turns out. But on the other hand, many of the Gentiles in Antioch choose the path of covenant inclusion. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Verse 48 is very clarifying in terms of what was going on in these people's hearts. Why did these particular Gentiles make that choice we could ask? Not everybody, not every Gentile Paul proclaims this message to believes. You could ask, why does anybody make this choice? Choose the saving fork in the road. I love the hymn text that says, Lord, tis not that I did choose you. That I know could never be. For this heart would still refuse you had your grace not chosen me. Luke says here, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is something that we need to remember in our gospel witness to the people around us. Yes, that crisis confronts every individual that we present Christ to. And in fact, it's part of our mission, part of our task to bring that crisis more and more fully to bear on people's lives. Everybody is faced with a choice, that decision, what are you going to do with Jesus? But the fruitfulness, the success of our witness, we have to remember, does not ultimately depend on the eloquence or the persuasiveness of our presentation. It doesn't depend on some natural goodness in those who respond. It is all the grace of God. He is sovereign over the message. He is sovereign over the response to the message. And we can be confident, as Luke says here, that all he has appointed to eternal life will believe it and will be forgiven, will be justified, will be saved. As we close, I also want to remind each of us that that crisis that confronted the people of Jerusalem first, but now the people of Antioch. First the Jews, but also the Gentiles. That crisis confronted not just them back then. It's a crisis that confronts not just people out on some foreign mission field somewhere where the gospel is making its way for the first time. It is a crisis. It is a fork in the road that stands before every one of us. What are we going to do? about Jesus. How are we responding to the message? Not just how did we once respond to the message of Jesus, but how are you responding to the message of Jesus today as it comes to you as the Lord presents this decisive question before you in the living present? We have to ask, are we thrusting it aside, jealous for our our own sovereignty, wanting to stay in charge of our own lives, our own thoughts, our own desires, our own choices? Or are we responding day by day at joyful, joyful surrender to this great Lord Jesus who died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead and is reigning forever Now, to give forgiveness and eternal life to everyone who trusts in Him? That is the question. That is the crisis that confronts us all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are a God who keeps His promises. That mystery kept hidden for long ages. Has now been revealed in the coming of the Lord Jesus. As you have taken those shadows and pictures and you have given the real thing. Oh Lord, we ask that you would give us soft hearts, humble minds, willing wills to bow the knee, to listen have teachable hearts that would hear and respond to this great, almighty grace so that we too could be among those who receive the promise of the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life Is found in this same Jesus who was offered to the people in Antioch then and is being offered to us right here in this room today. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.